Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Good to see you, Joe. Hey. Good to see you, Ray. How you doing? Hi, Ray. Hi, Ray. Hello, Janice. Hello, hello. Hey, Janice. Welcome. Are you in uh, California, Janice? I am. Oh, it looks lovely. Rob's like at Ayers Rock. Well, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got, you have family out there? We lived out here many years ago, and so we frequently come for a little break from Wisconsin winter. Well, some way, my children ended up in Hawaii. One oh, of my, nice. my daughter and son. We are sad we don't get to see them much, but when we do get to see them, it's a kind of a destination spot. Oh, here's Matt. He's got a bandana. You're ready for war. <laughs> Spiritual warfare. A good, that's the good jo- Japanese when you're ready to really fight. Well, I've been playing the Ghost of, Shush- of Tsushima on PlayStation 5, so maybe that's why. Oh, <laughs> that's it. Hey, Paul, I was going to ask you briefly. Do you know when... Uh, Augustine came up with his mistranslation and, well, when he built his whole theology on the mistranslation on Romans 5.12. I'm only asking because uh, your good friend David Bentley Hart, <laughs> he thinks August, St. Augustine was brilliant, but he wishes he would have stopped writing 20 years earlier, you know, before he wrote The City of God and made yeah. a case for theory. So I'm wondering if he also came up with this whole distortion of the atonement in his last 20, 25 years. And he sort of evidently had suggest maybe God could have taken him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Augustine became disgusting the older he got, as is often said of uh, Augustine, that his enemies defined him, especially his engagement with uh, Pelagius. And so he just seemed to come out more and more staunchly and then violently when he was Bishop of Hippo. So, and of course yeah. he, he rose to power as a Bishop, but I don't know the answer to your question. That's a wonderful question, but I had a particular thing here in mind. I was just reading through, there was a, actually, it was a conference in Australia, Rob, everybody had presented papers, you know, and they were defending penal substitution among the early church fathers which for most people, that's just a ridiculous argument. And so the whole basis of the argument was they're going back to the Old Testament and saying, well, you see, you got this passage in Isaiah, and you know, they're putting together notions of sacrifice. And this question is aimed precisely at that understanding of reading the Bible. That is, do we understand the Old Testament sacrifices properly? Did the Jews understand the temple? Did they understand any of that apart from the Messiah? I think their own answer to that question would be, well, in some way, the Messiah is the fulfillment. He's the resolution, the interpretive frame. And of course, that's what Christ is claiming, is he's true temple, true sacrifice, true high priest. And so I presume we're not going to read those passages apart from the person and work of Christ. Now, I know that all of us 
that have been to Bible college and seminary, that's not really the way we were probably trained. The way we were trained is in the historical critical method, you know, oh, you got to go look at the context. You got to look at the author's intent. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but if you end there, you're never going to get to Jesus. The idea of a kind of Christocentric hermeneutic is let's interpret through that understanding. And if you go back, this is what Matt was saying last week about origin. And it's just, it was just the way that they're reading the Bible. They're reading the Old Testament. And for them, the Bible, of course, was the Hebrew Scriptures. The way that Paul is saying, you know, he's reading in an in a allegorical manner, but a Christocentric allegorical understanding, that he's going to take these things and understand them as they are filled out by the person of Christ. That is a kind of unending process, and that's sort of the point. You know, hermeneutics is, that this. it's the uh, kind of the big question, you know, how do we read? And what I'm describing is that we read through Christ, but of course the natural thing is, but how can you start? How do you know who Christ is? So it is a continual that as we come to understand who Christ is, that we come to a deeper understanding of Scripture and vice versa. That is, that this thing builds, and I'm obviously saying there is no end to reading. That shouldn't shock us. I think that, in fact, we've been given a system that a historical critical understanding that actually once you do it, you're kind of finished with it. I remember a preacher said to me, and I, I, I'm in no way critical. He said, you know, I ran out of stuff to preach about 20 years ago, and so I quit. And I thought, yeah, I, I understand that, that in most systems of theology and most readings of Scripture, uh, you kind of got it. You know, it's a package deal, and you get the package, and you more or less got it set up. And, but So what I'm describing, or what I think is happening in the early church fathers, the understanding of a Christocentric reading, and one of the key things, one of the key elements about who Christ is, of course, is nonviolence, is peace. Paul, I had a question from last week. You said that you went maybe a step further than Barth, so I wanted to know what you meant by that, because I, I have some understanding of neo-orthodoxy and Barth's approach to Scripture, but I was curious about that and thought about it afterwards. That seems like an arrogant thing for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now explain it. <laughs> I actually, I don't remember in what context I might have said that. One of the things that's happening with Karl Barth, and of course, you know, you should be very slow to critique a genius, uh, which he is, but Barth is sometimes criticized of kind of landing in a ghetto. You know, you have the revelation of Christ and that that's kind of a self-contained understanding. And I think that actually in our understanding of the atonement and what we're looking at, instead of landing in a ghetto, the whole world is opening up to us. That revelation is not this thing that's contained simply in parameters that don't touch upon everything else, just the opposite that who Christ is in this understanding that we're laying out pertains to the cosmos, the cosmic Christ. And, and by that, I hope you don't confuse me with Richard Rohr, who is using this language. It's the language of the Franciscans, and I'm not meaning what they mean by this. You know, Rohr says we need to get rid of Jesus and talk about Christ. And so what he means is the historical person Jesus is somebody different 
than the person and work of Christ. Where he's getting that is the reading of that the Logos in John, that the typical way of reading the Logos in the modern period is we talk about the Logos as the pre-existent Christ. There is no such thing, John Bear says, in the patristic understanding of the Logos. When they, when they read Logos, they read Gospel. In other words, the Logos is Jesus. That's a radical understanding in which, rather than some pre-existent story or narrative that we don't have access to, what we're saying is, no, the story of God is the story that unfolds in the life of Jesus, in the life of Christ. And so it's not an abstraction from the historical person and work of Christ, but in fact, it's a focus on that historical person. Through that lens, I think we can avoid the kind of ghetto, whether that's fair or not, to Karl Barth. You know, Barth was, you know, sometimes said, well, he wanted nothing to do with philosophy, which is not exactly true. You know, his own brother was a philosopher. I can't remember where it is in the dogmatics. Actually, Bart has a pretty profound notion of he does a little thing on nothingness. But for the most part, I think it, it, is, it is a criticism that might hold that there is this kind of failure to look at Christ as I've done it in the past. I said that Christ is on the order of the Vitruvian man. You all, are you all familiar with uh, Leonardo da Vinci's portrayal of the Vitruvian man? You know, it's the, the guy in the wheel, he's naked, and some people think it was Leonardo da Vinci himself. And of course, Christians picked that up and said, well, this should be Christ, and I think that's right. But what da Vinci was saying is that we can understand the cosmos through the frame, the, and he was talking mathematics, of what a human being is. That is the sense of the logos, the gospel in John, that here is the two, true interpretive frame of the cosmos. So, so, Paul, are you saying that Karl Barth wasn't Christocentric enough? He didn't push the Christ? Of course, that's his phrase. I mean, he's the one that's yeah. tel telling us to be Christocentric. I can't remember what context I was talking about yeah. last week. I have a note here. You said we don't fit Christ in a frame. Christ is the new frame in which things are seen. And then you mentioned the peace of Christ, and then Karl Barth. Okay, yeah, Bart, you understand, was not a pacifist. Bart, in fact, took, he was very proud. He took his old rifle. He was already probably in his 60s, and he went out and stood guard on the border, uh, the Swiss border, and he was real proud of taking his part in. And so I think that there is a sense that Bart himself failed to apprehend his own Christocentrism. Uh, what a departure that is. It is an apocalyptic kind of departure. And if you miss the peace of Christ, which in a sense he did because he uh, believes in the necessity of, of state violence, then I think that, that you've not gone far enough. A lot of people are fellow travelers that will not make this final step in, in, of nonviolence. To me, it's just key that they're stuck in a kind of Constantinian frame. When you work out the radical nature of it is, it's just too much for most people to go there. But to my mind, the peace of Christ, the nonviolence, I was just reading in Irenaeus today, he talks about nonviolent atonement. I think he uses that phrase, a nonviolent atonement. It was certainly clear to the early church fathers. 
and that is that Christus Victor, the idea of Christ defeating evil, defeating the law of sin and death, defeating the powers that be, defeating, you know, Satan, however you want to call that, Irenaeus. He just talks about the defeat of death. He he calls the punishment and sin the same thing. In other words, what we're going to get in Augustine, he's going to make death retribution for sin. Oh, they sinned and then God punished them. Irenaeus reading Genesis 3, which in and of itself is kind of a little unusual because a lot of the church fathers won't, in fact, turn to Genesis 3. Irenaeus does. And his point is that it's not that death is retribution for sin. I'll say it this way and explain it. It doesn't sound right, but he almost says death is the sin. And what he means by that what was the original sin? Well, it was that they wanted to be the arbiters of ethics, knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be separate from God. And they were granted this, you know, that the, and that is death, of course. And so that death, is it a punishment? Well, yeah, but it is their a punishment, the very thing they bring on themselves. Irenaeus will talk about the whole theological project. That that's the sense in which, you know, we're saved from death. He sees resurrection as precisely over and against this. The, you know, if you understand, oh, death as an orientation is the predicament or the problem. Death is absence of, of the spirit. All I'm saying here is that Irenaeus is, first of all, he's very early. And he's also widely representative. He had contact with both East and West. He, he's absorbed the thought of his day and is, I think, expressing that. And so I think we can almost do Irenaeus and get a pretty good view of what the early church fathers saw. All right, Paul, um, are, are you comfortable using the term recapitulation for Irenaeus's doctrine of the atonement? Yeah, I mean, that's, what, that's his idea that Christ recapitulation. You know, he's, and he's just looking right at Romans 5, where the first Adam is failed and the second Adam completes. And the, the recapitulation, there is a kind of notion here of a continuation of creation that is captured in recapitulation. He has the idea that the Adam and Eve were immature and that the human race was immature. And I'm open to that. And I'm even open to that in regard to, you know, our own personal development. Uh, as I was asking, you know, how, how do we enter into this thing? Some of you are brighter than I was as a child. I didn't know there was such thing till I encountered Christianity. Well, it becomes critical um, where we place death and sin. If you place sin first, you've created a, an, a different, maybe a different atonement uh, yeah. theory. I guess that's the big wow for me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put that together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's key. That's key. And that, obviously, with Adam, we have sin and then death. But with everybody else, it's death and then sin. And that's what Paul's describing in Romans 5. Given Augustine's bad translation, uh, but go through the rest of the chapter. Chapter well, 5, verse 12. 5, 12. Yeah. Go through the rest of the chapter, and he says it again and again. Death reigned. Uh, sin reigned in death. And, of course, he also says that in Corinthians. That very simple concept is what we're missing. 
because nobody thinks that way. That's all Irenaeus is really doing. He's saying, yeah, sin reigned in death. Death is this fleshly principle that what the image of man is, is relational. And this is an idea you're going to get in Paul. What is the image of God that we bear? He's going to talk about the relational image between male and female. This also takes him to a very fleshly or physical notion of the relation. When he's talking about death reigns, for him, that is the marring of the image, even just talking about physical death. Because physical death, it's our bodies in which we bear the image of God. And if you get a Pauline or a New Testament sense of this, that is the way in which we're relational. We're born into a family, we marry, we, you know, those relationships are part of our humanity. And that's what he means by that. Physical death is a marring of the image because it's an undoing then. It's a corruption in Irenaeus's picture of it. It kind of does away with, because I hear this terminology a lot, like, well, the death that he's talking about is spiritual death. You know, because they didn't just die right there in the garden, right? So I think they throw around the term spiritual death, and which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think creates a, an inappropriate dualism of sorts. If you're using that, uh, you know, spiritual death, you're getting away from the dilemma that mankind has. Yeah, Irenaeus, everything is couched in against the heretics, against the Gnostics. And I think that's real handy for us, because I think that's really who we're up and against, is modern-day Gnostics. Now, that's probably too harsh, and it's probably an overstatement. Uh, who is it, Matt, that wrote the book, you know, the Protestant Gnostics? Lee? Philip Lee. Yeah, Philip Lee. And even he, you know, he draw, He says, well, you know, that that's the tendency. I think he's right. I was just going to say that, uh, for what it's worth, my favorite understanding of the atonement is recapitulation because really, uh, and I like Christus Victor and some of these other ways of looking at it, but to me, recapitulation is like a fancy word. I mean, it's a good technical word, but it's a good, you know, for, for change and really for restoration, right? That is, is that, okay, what's the best way to understand the atonement, which I think, you know, began with the Annunciation, right? And the, the birth of Christ. So, so we normally just talk about it with the death of Christ and the resurrection. But I think a proper understanding is the moment that Gabriel announced to Mary that, you know, a son was going to be born to her. It's like, well, the change had begun, right? And so like in the restoration had begun. And so you could just go all the way through all the different, whether it's death being, you know, changed until you're restored, uh, Adam, you know, violence, you know, peace being restored. In other words, like Christ comes to inaugurate this, apocalyptic change which is really an apocalyptic restoration to me that's what the atonement is the easiest and best way i think think about it is that christ has come to change the cosmos to and i do like the way that um that heart and other people talk about and the, the other change is is that the principalities of this uh, you know the the devil and the demons have been defeated that that change that that restoration has come about to me you can kind of use that motif and go all the way through and say well ultimately what the atonement is about is about making you know, an nt rights phrase you know making things right setting things to rights he says you know but what does that mean well that means he's changing he's changing the the circum the situation and and specifically how, what he's changing it uh or how he's changing it is restoration in the cosmos yeah. 
the, the, the what he's restoring the cosmos to, I would say, is unity with God. That, that, that it's a specific, it's a restoration to something very specific. And that is, is, what, is that man was alienated and that violence and sin and death, all those are different ways of talking about that. But what's being restored is the unity of man with God. But of course, that, that change is affected by the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so Matt, you're saying that Christus Victor doesn't go far enough and deep enough. Recapitulation is a bigger, more comprehensive view of the atonement. I think earlier too. Yeah, I think it's it's earlier too. And that because I think that that really is. I do think that Christus Victor there with the defeat of the powers, like that's. I think that David Billy Hart said one time, if you wanted to boil down, uh, you know, Saint Paul's theology, it's that the the Satan has been overthrown, you know, and, and the rule of Satan has been. And that the rule of God is being restored, right? So that change of that so I think the Christus Victor is something very important for us to, but something maybe even more fundamental, the alienation that Paul was just describing from Genesis three. That I remember something that Paul told me that told the class very in like Bib Theo one hundred and one that I never forgot, and he said that I actually wrote it in the beginning of my Bible, like on the on the cover page, and he said, you know, the 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 Bible. What is the Bible? And he said it's an unfolding narrative you know and so you know you have creation and you have fall and so that everything that comes after you know this makes so much sense right but everything that comes after the fall you know it's it's like the the rest of the story in other words it's always reference it's like if anything else if you start a book or a movie or anything you got to keep the beginning in mind it's like oh that's right you know in the beginning there was this you know big thing that happened and that that's what the unfolding of the book or the movie is kind of addressing right It's, it's such a kind of like a simple point or whatever but i think that paul must be right that 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 what's continually being restored is that situation with creation being restored to unity with god right and that the fall and all those different effects of alienation shame guilt violence hatred you know all that stuff that's what's being recapitulated in christ in the and i mean specifically in the person of our lord jesus christ that he's the one who comes and uh, restores the relationship of the divine and the human in his person. Let me say two things about what you said, and that is that I don't think there is any tension between recapitulation and Christus Victor. They're both in Irenaeus. Recapitulation is a section, you know, he's describing, he says, okay, this is what Christ does, but he's describing the necessity of it in the sense that you know when he talks about death death is alienation death is corruption and so there is the necessity to go through and recapitulate because of the corruption of the evil one of the deception he doesn't hit the language of deception quite as you know but he does he it's there but it, that's not his main point he's equating death then with one state with the first Adam, you know, this is Paul in Romans 5 again, with the first Adam, there's death, and with the second Adam, is the head of the father of life. That's my first point. The second point is what is going to be called an Eastern understanding is originally there in Irenaeus, and that is the idea is that creation continues through Christ. He just sees Christ as completing what was begun in the first Adam. And so it's not the sense of return to the garden or the notion of return, but a completion, the fullness. 
Well, yeah, I was just thinking, uh, you know, uh, a restoration of the inmate, right? So, like, uh, you know, think of a, you know, there's the the old story of a, uh, well, actually, our priest told this story that there was a, that there was an icon, you know, icon is just the word for, it's where we get image, you know, but there was a literal icon and it was all, it was a very old icon. And um, Father Gregory said that he wasn't even able to make out who the icon was. It was that damaged and old and stuff like that. But this expert came and, and the icon was given to this expert um, and he was able to, you know, take the icon and somehow bring out, you know, the original colors and the forms and the shape and all of its. Br- and then when Father Gregory, uh, who's my priest, you know, he when he saw the icon, whenever it was finished and it was restored, it was so clear, you know, that that how this image had been restored, you know, and he said, well, isn't that the image of salvation? The, the image of God has been marred, you know, by death and sin and evil and all this stuff like that. But God comes, you know, and and, and, and brings out. So it's not, it's like what you're saying It's it's maybe not a, a return, but it's a restoration though of his image. And uh, it's that's a right. that's right. and a bringing out of the true colors and yeah. stuff like that. To me, that's a really cool image of, because yeah, we're not going backwards, right? We're going forwards into new creation, into so, you know, Christ is ushering in a new kingdom and a, and a new recapitulation. Doesn't mean, I don't think, like a return to right. It's a it's a different right, right, right. Different. It's it is the fulfillment or the pleroma. What might be the problem in these first theories in origin in Gregory of Nyssa? They're going to use a kind of crude illustration. And also ransom theory kind of gets mixed in here. And that is they're picturing Jesus is an origin that talks about Jesus, the bait on the hook. And so they picture the death of Christ as a kind of deception on the part of God and that they managed to trick the devil. Why they use these crude illustrations, they're not crude people. I don't know. So the crudity of the illustrations, the idea of a of God paying a ransom to the devil is sometimes pictured there. I don't think any of this is a necessity to Christus Victor, but there are, you know, ransom theory kind of fits into some notions of Christus Victor. And yeah, those are inadequate. And so when we get to Anselm and Abelard, they're not going to deal with the devil in any way. They just want to get rid of that language. I don't know why, but maybe it had been made crude. Also, of course, I think that by the time you get to Anselm, you can't go around pointing your finger at the devil, the emperor, because I really think that's what the first Christians thought. There's the devil. He sits on the throne of Rome. In other words, they thought of the principalities and powers as controlled by the evil one. And that's partly when I talk about progress in theology, that's partly what I'm describing. I think we can describe this. In other words, I think the, the core concept is there, that in dealing with psychoanalysis and applying it in these different ways, that we're actually giving application to the original understanding, better illustration than what maybe they had. I wonder, Paul, if the, the, the ransom theory does uh, the same thing like uh, penal substitution in the sense that it's not re- capitulating the, the whole cosmos, right? It's it's just focused in uh, maybe more on the individual. I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. That would be a question that needs research, and I'm probably not up to answering it. But my instinct in answering it is that we're still dealing with corporate notions in the early 
church fathers. We're going to gradually, of course, by the time you get to Augustine, this is going to be interiorized. He's going to talk about an inward and an outward sort of salvation. And of course, by the time you get to Augustine, he's going to talk about the church being invisible because, you know, you take a consensus of Rome and he looked at Rome and he said, well, most of these people that we're now calling Christians, we know they're not really Christians. So I think Augustine, I can't remember the figure, maybe he said, well, maybe 5% of them. So what he's saying is that we need to distinguish some sort of interior condition. I don't think that was there in the early church fathers when they're talking about a kind of corporate defeat of the devil in the church, that they picture the principalities and powers as under the control of the evil one. I, I think it's too dismissive to call to talk about Gregory of Nyssa uh, and, and that is being crude, just because I think that if you read if you read what they're doing there, they're they're saying basically that they use the the devil's device, his own devices against him, that his own uh, lust, you know, for violence and for hatred and for greed and all this stuff, that God in his wisdom used that to defeat him. So he's defeated by his own devices because had they had they known that Jesus was the Christ, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. You, you know what I'm saying? So like, I, that's, I think that that's their, their way of saying that now the, the God in his wisdom really does in the flesh of Christ, you know, that the logos is in the, in the, of course, in the, in Christ and that the devil thought that he could, if he just ripped the shreds, you know, the body of <clears throat> the scourgings and the whippings and the, and the whatever that he could, um, defeat God's anointed, but of course that was the very instrument of his own undoing was through his malicious sort of rage-filled violence, which I think fits very well into this class because again, it's so even there there's a sort of re recapitulation that Christ absorbs. You know that's Christus Victor that Christ absorbs. You know the 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 seat of the devil that's not that's not just in some sort of mystical sense, but even in the Pharisees and the scribes and these people who should have understood the the law, but they since they read it you know, by the letter, they, they miss the fact that Jesus is the Christ, but that they use, that the Lord in his wisdom uses their own sort of craftiness against them. And their craftiness comes from the deception of the spiritual darkness, you know. In my back, in my church back, background, I've always heard like, it seems like God and Christ are pitted together. There's sort of like an opposite. Christ suffers. God and Christ are not in opposition, but God reconciles the world to himself. God was in Christ. You know, it's all contained in the same process. So may maybe to go back and say, how did God, the Father, get pitted against the Son? And I think it is with Augustinian notions of retribution, because, oh, the, the penalty for sin is death. What did Jesus do? He, he bore the penalty. And so you get this retributive notion that will pit what the Father is doing against the Son. That's simply not there in the picture that we're describing, in which, no, it's not that death is retribution, it's that, the, the, that it is the very problem itself that is being overcome. This becomes, I think, heretical, even in the eyes of Calvinists. I quoted Calvinists on Calvinism, and they're critiquing their own extremists, but actually a common idea that there is an ontological turning away from Christ on the part of the Father, that he turns his back. God forbid. This is, I think, out-and-out out heresy. 
and even Calvinists recognize its heresy. If you take because then you have God, there, you know, people talking about oh that God in that instance hates his son. You know, a little about of that is there in Luther that Luther will say Jesus was, you know, he describes him as the worst sinner. He was the worst adulterer. He was the worst, you know, this real wooden, literal way of reading. But even Luther couldn't go where Calvin went. And Calvin then is going to talk about, you know, the father taking out his anger on the son. So I think that it becomes a full-blown heresy in the Reformation. Uh, I think it's a little bit there in Augustine. It may be there, you know, Anselm is a little more careful, but he's also, I think the problem arises in Anselm. Sorry, Paul, can I, just to clarify, because my youth group uh, are doing a uh, study next term of six theological words, and one of them is propitiation. They want to get into propitiation, and I'm shuddering at the thought, so propitiation, the, the, the whole idea that somehow at the cross of Christ, propitiation is taking place before John Calvin, can you find that in, in the writings of um, anyone? Yeah, what is the word? Hilaskomai? Is that the... Okay, and, yeah. And you can translate it propitiation. And of course, the so problem... You can, you can actually translate it propitiation. No, I, I, w I wouldn't. But no. I'm, I'm saying that people sure. do translate it that yeah. way. But the problem of propitiation is this, uh, unfortunately, it buys into this whole notion yeah. that you find in pagan religion. Uh, that, you know, you got to sacrifice to the gods, the gods are angry, uh, and we're going to appease their wrath, give them a couple virgins. It is a widespread pagan notion. Some would argue the word should be translated expiation that propitiation is the wrong word. That is, propitiation bears the idea of a penalty of God's wrath and payment for this. Expiation is more of the resolution of this, you know, to, to resolve this, the sin problem. Whether you want to load it into these semantic terms, I don't know. You know, is it simply a semantic term? Well, it's not. But that word propitiation is very problematic. And so I think we almost need a different, to translate that word differently. In particular texts, you know, you can look where the word is used and look at the way that it comes out differently. That would be my approach with young with youth, is to say, well, this is a way of translating it, but here's the original Greek word, and here's an alternative translation. Sure. And Irene S. and all those church fathers, they, they didn't do much with propitiation? No, they... such, no such idea. Okay. I, and I don't think I'm being glib here. Uh, it's just not there. The reason it's not there, my Bible college professors told me, is because they really didn't have a well-grounded atonement theory. <laughs> that's that's what I was taught. Yeah, yeah, those poor, poor Apostle Paul. Too bad he yeah. didn't, yeah, couldn't consult Calvin's uh, institutes. We just go back for just one minute because we passed over pretty quickly. Can you imagine the madness, the theological madness of having some system that would require you to say that our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest adulterer, the greatest murderer, the greatest pornographer, the great? In other words, he's the you know the, the in some way now and 
I guess that Luther is saying that uh, because he became sin and he wants to, you know, he, he takes that in, that in that in that sense or whatever. I, I don't know. Am I, am I being too? Am I being too silly to think that that's just utter? I mean, that is a horrific, the blasphemy, or am I just misunderstanding uh, Luther? Or I mean, it, it, and that seems to me like the I, I, that can't be. I mean, Luther would have never wanted to uh, to blaspheme the Lord. I, I, I as much as I disagree with him, so so I must be. No, I want to be charitable, but it's like, good God, man, how are you going to call Jesus like the worst? person who's ever even if it's for that moment on the cross or whatever like like we're talking about the son of god it, something in me really does cringe and shudder and then to talk about that god hates you know that in other words so so what we're doing is we're inscribing you know when we talk about racism and we talk about militarism and oppress and all this we talk about all the terrible stuff like we're inscribing that into the divine life at the epicenter you know the, at, the, at the most crucial moment where god reveals himself to where he, who he truly is it you know he he becomes an infinite sort of hate not love but that he's pouring out how his hate and that christ is the receptacle you know that uh for for this sort of uh so it's like man I missed that part in the in the in the New Testament where where because I thought that God was you know infinite goodness and love and you know and that, that His mercy endures forever and that His wrath is only lasts but for a moment and things like this. So it's like, man, have I have I just really really misunderstood Christian theology, or does Luther have it right? Pat, you need to have further training. Go to seminary. Years and year after years and years. This is a great mystery, and only the greatest minds can enter into this mystery. And you need to release, you know, this kind of stilted way you have of thinking and be able to expand. I'm being facetious, but I think if a good Calvinist were here, that would be, or a good Lutheran, that would be their answer. Words come to mean nothing in this system. Righteousness, you know, goodness. What is being described as evil? I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we've made God evil. This is very personal to all of us because it's not that any of us, I, I think that we've all been infected. You know, penal substitution, even churches that don't know that's Calvin, they're teaching penal substitution. I grew up with that. I didn't grow up with it. I didn't. I was pretty slow as a child, so I, I was actually orthodox without knowing it. But eventually I learned, and then I became a complete heretic. So that I think we've all been indoctrinated into this. And I think what you're saying, I think that's the little kid that says, hey, the emperor has no clothes. This is atrocious. This is what we're saying. And, you know, how in the world did we get here? I think it is a kind of blasphemy. I agree. And maybe I am alone in casting these great teachers down from their high places but I don't care if your name is Luther, Calvin, Augustine, whatever. When they contradict the character, nature, works, everything we know about God, I'm going to call them wrong. And I'm even going to dare suggest that wittingly or unwittingly, these people could very much be tools of Satan, corrupting the gospel. Because isn't that Satan's ultimate goal? To confuse deceive, distort the message of the gospel so that we don't get it, so that we don't get the power we need, we don't have the hope we need, we don't receive all of the things that Jesus has provided for us. 
Isn't that what Satan wants? Mm-hmm. And I'm willing personally to consider the possibility that men like Calvin were not men of God. Yes, even Luther. Mm-hmm. Call me a heretic, call me whatever, but they're just men. I used the phrase, and Matt critiqued me, of a failed Christianity. And I think Matt's right. I probably should be more careful. Uh, I think we've got to name this thing. We've got to say this is evil. And, I, and I, of course, I think we're living at a moment in time, I mean, with Trumpism, and which Christianity is actually be, being wielded for out-and-out evil purposes. But this moment in time is not unique. Uh, I think that's happened at several points in Christianity. Most, the most notorious, of course, in, is in Nazi Germany. And you can just see how the gospel is emptied out. So that the, you know, Hitler is going to, talk, he's going to use Christianese. He's going to identify himself as a Christian and use that language and dupe people with it. So that probably the guy that most of us would say, well, there is the devil. Yeah, but he's, he, you understand he's using all this Christian language. So I think you're right, Janice. I think we just need to be able to say, uh, yeah, there's there's the devil. This is Kierkegaard's point, that a perverted Christianity is worse than a, a kind of simple paganism, because now you have nothing left. You've undone the gospel itself. I think that that's kind of what we're seeing unleashed in our day and age. And by the way, this is Rene Girard, when we get to that section, he predicts that this will happen, that there's an unleashing of violence when Christ unleashes the scapegoating mechanism. You know, that no longer functions. But that's not necessarily a good thing, because then you're just left with all out-and-out violence. And that's literally the, the situation that we're in worldwide, that mutually assured destruction is a byproduct you know, look at the people doing this and they're, where they're coming from. They're all Christians, you know, <laughs> right? And by the way, you know, I, I was just reading an Origins commentary on, uh, it was either Genesis or Exodus, and he, he, th- he talks about the false teachers of his day, you know, the, the Gnostics and the, you know, the people that he says that they garb, you know, that they clothe themselves in good works even he says they they trick people by their good behavior by their good character and by their language so it's like this gets really complicated right because he's saying that these false teachers they you know they they clothe themselves in the christian language they do they live you know uh, what appear to be good lives and things like that but my point to paul earlier about maybe saying a failed christianity might have been that that you know i was brought to christ and you know my first exposure to god was through rc sproul who, who is just as Calvinistic as you get, you know what I mean? Through a book he wrote called The Holiness of God. That was my, that was my entry into the faith. And then I was nurtured by, you know, people like Luther who, and, and his theology of the cross. And, you know, I, I think that maybe because of, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, that he's, that the logos of Christ is still there. Like even, even, and I'm not, not to say Janice to take away from what you're saying, because I'm, I'm like wrestling with what you just said. And I, by the way, like in some Orthodox circles, they would just say, amen, sister, they're all heretics. They're not in the kingdom, you know, get them out of here, you know? And I don't know if I want to go that far with them, even though I'm Orthodox, you know, but uh, because uh, I, I know a lot of people who, who are, who are Lutherans or, or, or even who are Calvinists or, or who hold, like Paul also said in that chapter, that a lot of people are better than their theology, you know? I, and I also got to believe that because we believe that Christ is incarnate, in history, and dare I say, even in Protestantism and Catholicism, all these different things that we might not agree with, 
the power of Christ, though, he's still there. I mean, I know from my own life, it's like he pulled me out of my life, you know, of darkness through, right, like through Calvinism and through things like this. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm still climbing up out of it and stuff like that. So I get that was my point to say, well, anywhere the word Christ is, and Paul, maybe you, maybe you would disagree, but it's like, can, there, can we really say that it's a failed? I mean, isn't that what recapitulation and restoration is, is that anywhere where Christ is, even in some of these like sort of teachings that we would say are, are not fully orthodox or whatever, that it's still the, the image of Christ that is so compelling to people that they're still willing to abandon their sin, that they're still willing to repent, that they're still willing to, you know, turn their life over to the service of, of God and to the poor and things like that because of the power of, you know, the gospel of God's goodness that somehow penetrates even through these sort of what I would consider false doctrines. I, I, I do. And I've, believe me, I've lost a lot. I've stayed, Paul can tell you, it's like, I've t- taken these stands like Janice. It's like, I've lost a lot of people that I really love and care about who don't talk to me anymore. And so I get what you're saying. And there's they're so that the people become so passionate about, uh, you know, these doctrines that the in the letter this is what we talked about last class right it's like the 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 doctrines are like the letter whereas like the spirit of christ though we gets missed that's what you were just saying in in your awesome words what you were just saying it's like okay you guys might have these awesome theories worked out and and everything the letters all figured out but it totally violates the spirit of christ like the spirit of that we know you know of god's character it's that god is not hateful he's not vengeful he's not you know that he's uh I know that there's passages and stuff that we could, you know, proof text on either side of it or whatever, but my Jesus is not hateful. That's all I know. You know what I mean? He's not, he, he's not. Yeah. I, I guess that's all I meant Paul earlier to say that perhaps Christ can penetrate through even, even the, the darkness of some of, some of this stuff that, to reach the people that he loves me, you know, I think he can, or I hope he can. Right. Be- because I think I, I started getting to, a peace theology before I got to a different atonement theory, but it took patience. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see it coming, but, but what I'm saying is, is I started moving towards, towards that, Paul, even within your classes. And I remember it was actually um, with Jason. He introduced me to a book. I've got it on my shelf right now, but it had, it, it dealt with atonement theories that were nonviolent and uh, it took some of the wrestling through that book to make the changes. And I think some of it is, is that I, I think the, that, the, that the way that Christ works with us is, you know, how do I, how do I help and love, you know, work through, through some of that? Hopefully maybe the same way uh, others, you know, worked with me. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.